This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. The Supreme Court is supposed to provide a check on Congress and the president to protect our rights. But we all know about the Supreme's decisions in Citizens United, which permits unlimited campaign contributions by billionaires and corporations, and the refusal to enforce the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And let's not forget Bush v. Gore, just to take a few recent examples. Can anything be done about the Supreme Court? For that, we turn to Tom Hartman. Of course, he's host of one of our most important talk shows. Talkers Magazine has listed him in the top 10 for more than a decade. He's also a best-selling and award-winning author of 24 books translated into 17 languages. His new book is The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Tom Hartman, it's an honor and a pleasure to say welcome to the program. Well, thank you, John. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. Okay, we didn't like the court's decisions in the Citizens United case or the Voting Rights Act. That one was called Shelby County versus Holder. But we did like Brown versus Board of Education, which declared segregated schools unconstitutional in 1954. We did like Roe v. Wade, which gave constitutional protection to abortion rights in 1973. We liked the more recent rulings on gay marriage and Obamacare. So, Our problem is not with the court as an institution. It's with the current political makeup of the court. Everybody knows the court is political. So isn't the solution a simple one? Elected Democratic president and three more Democratic senators in 2020, wouldn't that solve our problems with the court? Well, uh, probably not for uh, 15, 20, maybe 30 years. (laughs) They've been packing the court with young conservatives. Um, but there are a number of people involved in the uh, abortion rights movement who would point out to you that by the late 60s, early 70s, a women's rights movement had kicked off in a really big way. Uh, A number of states had decriminalized abortion, and um, had the Supreme Court not inserted itself with the Roe v. Wade decision, and then later with uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, in which uh, the court actually made law. They created law. They, they defined three trimesters and all these things, which is clearly not in the definition of the Supreme Court in the Constitution. Had that not happened, and had the process organically happened over the course of the next decade, and it was really moving in that direction. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember that time. Had it, had it happened more organically, uh, we probably wouldn't be in the problem, the situation we have right now, where you've had this 40 years of an insanely activated grievance-driven anti-abortion movement, it simply would have been adjudicated in the court of public opinion, you know, state by state. And yeah, there may still be states that have abortion illegal, but I'm guessing that the pressure uh, by this time would be so great that that wouldn't be the case. Um, So, you know, even the the things that we look to the court and say it wasn't that wonderful have very often been not necessarily so. Uh, the, The question fundamentally, John, is are we a constitutional democracy or a constitutionally limited representative democratic republic, to be technical, or are we a constitutional monarchy? And when, when the government was set up initially, it was set up as a, as a constitutional democracy. 
Um, in 1803, in the Marbury decision, when the Supreme Court decided that they were more powerful and could strike down laws made by Congress and signed by the president, that they were the supreme branch of government, you know, basically what they did is they flipped us into becoming a constitutional monarchy. But the reaction to that in 1803, Jefferson's reaction to it was so violent and, and the whole country was so upset about it that uh, John Marshall, who was on the court longer as a, as a chief justice than any other ju- chief justice, never again went to judicial review. He never again did that. And in fact, the second time it happened in the first 80 years of American history was in 1856, when Chief Justice Roger Taney thought he would solve the slavery problem once and for all in a decision called Dred Scott v. Sanford. And of course, that led right to the Civil War. So the history of the Supreme Court taking upon themselves the, the power and ability to strike down laws made by Congress or um, as in the case of Roe v. Wade or, or others, you know, frankly, uh, that, that are much less palatable to us, uh, writing law, uh, that history is, is a fraught history. And, and it really only, the court really only started doing this in the 1880s when um, you know, three or four members of the court were being aggressively bribed by the railroad uh, chief justice or by the railroad uh, uh, barons. When I was writing Unequal Protection back in 2001, we got into the John Chandler, uh, the uh, excuse me, the uh, Morrison Remick Waite uh, archives in the National Archives, and he was the Chief Justice in the 1880s, and 1886 in the Santa Clara County case uh, that that uh, history tells us gave us corporate personhood. And um, in those archives, we found the actual correspondence with Stephen J. Field, the uh, the Supreme Court Justice in California, who was also on the Ninth Circuit, and Jay Gould, basically bribing him. And, you know, to get to, to get corporate personhood and in exchange for that, Jay Gould was going to support his uh, run for the presidency in 1892. So uh, that was the era when the court started inserting itself aggressively, repeatedly in every session using this uh, excuse of, well, we're interpreting the Constitution and, you know, which led us to Plessy and led us to. to and that's pretty much all the court does now. So we are very much no longer a constitutional democracy. We are now a constitutional monarchy where the monarchs have actually more power than most of the monarchies of Europe. Um, in, in some European countries, the Supreme Court has no ability to interpret the law according to the Constitution. Uh, the Netherlands, for example. Other countries, it has a limited ability or there's a separate court to do it, like Germany. And, you know, we haven't really had this conversation in the United States. Conservatives had this conversation in the 50s, 60s, and 70s around Brown and Roe. But as a nation, we haven't had this conversation since the 1860s. And I think we need to have this conversation. Well, the basic principle behind judicial review, as I understand it, was that the founding fathers feared what they called the excesses of democracy, majorities taking away rights from minorities, Whites forcing blacks into inferior schools. These are examples from our lifetimes. Capitalists putting communists in jail in the 50s. Christians deporting Muslims after 9-11. Haven't those been real problems in our country? They have. And, and you know, some of them were literally written into the Constitution. They were the way that people wanted things. Um, people, uh, you know, when, when Marbury was decided in 1803, uh, John Marshall struck down part of the Judiciary Act of 1797, and uh, Thomas Jefferson was president, and he went nuts. And he said, under this decision, if the Supreme Court can, can undo what Congress has done and what the president has done, under this decision, 
the Constitution has become a thing of wax to be molded in the hands of the judiciary. Um, in a letter to Abigail Adams, he said, you know, under this decision, the Constitution has become a suicide pact. Um, in a letter to to, uh, to George Mason, he said, uh, the, John Marshall has made the Supreme Court the most despotic of the branches. And so uh, a friend of his, and I'm, I, I'm, I've got to go ahead go back and look at my own book to remember who it was who wrote him the letter, but somebody wrote him a letter saying, well, if the, if the Supreme Court doesn't determine what the Constitution means, um, who does? And Jefferson responded with three words. He said, the people themselves, and uh, which is the title of a book by Larry Kramer, who's the former dean of the Stanford Law School, uh, attacking judicial review, taking Jefferson's positions. And uh, what Jefferson said was, you know, basically, if Congress passes laws that are patently, nakedly unconstitutional and the president signs them, it's up to the people to throw those bombs out. It's not up to the Supreme Court to fix it. We are not a monarchy. And then people say to me, well, what if what if Congress passed a law saying that if you criticize President Trump, he could put you in jail? And, uh, you know, my answer to that is, well, we've had that situation now twice in the United States. The first time was in 1798 when John Adams was president and Thomas Jefferson was vice president, this was the thing that caused them to stop speaking for the rest of their lives uh, in person. Um, and Adams signed the Alien and Sedition Act, which said that it was a crime to, quote, bring the president into disrepute. And the day that Adams signed that law, he had Ben Franklin's grandson, Benjamin Franklin Bach, thrown in jail for publishing a, uh, an op-ed in his newspaper, the, the uh, Aurora, that said that uh, President Adams was old, toothless, querulous, you know, cranky, and balding. Um, <laughs> for that, he lost his newspaper and went to prison. And Adams put 20 newspaper publishers in prison and shut down their newspapers. Um, that was not solved by the Supreme Court. That was solved by the election of 1800, when Adams and his Federalists were just wiped out in the election. And Jefferson came in and became president uh, with his Democrats. You know, that, that was the, what we called the Democratic Party. Back then, it was the Democratic Republicans. So, so uh, you know, which was kind of the vindication of Jefferson's position. Um, I, on the other hand, you know, in 1915 or 19, whenever it was, 1718, and during World War One, when Woodrow Wilson got the second Alien and Sedition Act passed and started throwing people like you and me in jail, people who were who were speaking out against the war, World War One, um, and literally he was throwing them in jail. The Supreme Court said, "Oh, that's fine." In Karamatsu, when, when Franklin Roosevelt was putting Japanese in internment camps, the Supreme Court said, oh, that's fine. I mean, the Supreme Court has far more often been the agent of wealth, power, privilege, segregation, you know, go through the list of, of social political evils than they have by, by a huge margin, you know, destroying the rights of labor than they have on behalf of the rights of human beings and the, and the rights of uh, and, and human rights. Okay, you've, you've convinced me. We have huge problems with the court. What is to be done? FDR tried something called court packing. It failed. What is court packing, and is it legal? Uh, yes, it's legal. FDR's court packing did not fail. Um, it, what happened was in, you know, he became president in '33 and started the New Deal, and the Supreme Court was, uh, there were these four guys in the Supreme Court. They were called the Four Horsemen. They were hardcore right-wingers. And they, were, they struck down the child labor laws. They struck down the minimum wage law. They struck down the unemployment insurance law. They, just, they were striking you know, law after law after law. They were striking them down. And America was really seriously pissed off about this, as was Franklin Roosevelt. 
So when FDR won re-election in 36, and we're, we're now in the 37 year in 1937, and Social Security, which was just passed two years ago, is going to come before the Supreme Court. And, and FDR was not willing to see that go down in flames. And so what he proposed, Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution, says that Congress may, that the Supreme Court shall be regulated by Congress. And one of the main ways Congress regulates the Supreme Court is by deciding how many members it has. So FDR said, we're going to have this deal where every member who's over 70 years old becomes a member emeritus. He's still on the court. He can still participate. We're not kicking him off the court. Um, that would be unconstitutional. But all of them in aggregate, there were five of them at the time, they have one vote. And then to fill the other four votes, I'll add four more members to the court. He was he had huge support for that. I, I realize that if you read Wikipedia and things now, it doesn't say that. But if you go back and read the histories that were written in the 1940s and 1950s, read Francis Perkins's writings, read the New York Times from that era, I quote them all in my book, it was hugely popular. And, and FDR probably would have succeeded if Justice Owens and Justice Roberts, who were two of the four horsemen, didn't, within a week of each other, change all their votes and start voting with, with the FDR. It would be like Sam Alito and, and Clarence Thomas suddenly deciding to become liberals. That's what happened in 37. And at that point, there was no longer any need to pack the court. And so FDR just said, screw it, you know, we'll just move on. So that's something that could be done. And that's one way it could be done. It, it has been done. Uh, the court, the number of members of the court has been changed for purely political purposes. Um, after Lincoln was assassinated and Andrew Johnson became president, the Republicans controlled the House and Senate. Johnson was a Democrat from the South and a slaveholder, and they didn't want him to have the ability to put anybody on the Supreme Court while he was president. So they, they, they passed a law to reduce the number of members of the court from 10, which is what it was then, down to six. And that sat right up until the day Johnson left office and Ulysses S. Grant became president. And within a month, Congress met and raised it back up to nine, which is where it is now. All right. That's what has been called court packing, increasing the number of justices, perfectly reasonable, perfectly legal. You describe something else I had never heard of called court stripping. You call it the ultimate nuclear option. What is court stripping? Yes. When Ronald Reagan came to office, well, let, let me back up. If, if you go back and read the Federalist Papers, Hamilton makes this strong case that the Supreme Court will always be the weakest and most least likely to offend anybody branch of the three branches of government because they don't have the power of the purse. They don't have the power of the, of the military, the police powers. And Article 3, Section 2 says that they shall operate under regulations and with exceptions defined by Congress. So, in 1980, when Reagan became president, or 81, he hired a young lawyer to come into the Reagan Justice Department and gave him an office in a year and said, figure out how we can overturn Roe v. Wade and Brown versus Board, because those are the promises we made to our base. And, but we're not going to be able to do it with a constitutional amendment, so figure out how we can do it some other way. And this young lawyer went back to Jefferson's writings and Hamilton's writings and all this stuff, and he said, well, it's really obvious. The, our, our Article 3, Section 2 says that Congress can define exceptions under which the Supreme Court may not rule. So all we have to do is pass a law that says that um, uh, states can criminalize abortion if they choose, and states can have segregated schools if they want. And then add a sentence to the end of that law that says, and this law may not be reviewed by the Supreme Court. Wow. That's all we have to do. 
Wow. That, that he, he wrote a 29 page memo on this that went into just insane depth. I quote at length from it in my book. And, uh, when this memo came out in, I think it was 83, it's in the book. Um, you know, when it was circulated through the Reagan administration, there was a small bomb went off. I mean, everybody's like, whoa, you know, shall we do this? Ultimately, they decided that they didn't have enough political capital. They didn't have a large enough majority in Congress to be able to even try this. And so it got shelved. And, and, and that's where it sat until I discovered it a few months ago when I was, or a year ago when I was writing the book. That young lawyer, by the way, his name was John Roberts, and he's currently the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Tom Hartman. His amazing new book is The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Thank you, Tom. This has been great. Thanks, John. Great talking with you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.